0: The House and Senate are both in recess and will not return until mid-September. Now let's talk about that student loan scam you may have heard about last week. On Wednesday, President Biden announced that the government would forgive $10,000 in student loans for debtors earning up to $125,000 per year, or up to $20,000 in student loan debt for debtors who had received a Pell Grant. Though the White House refused to offer a projected price tag for this program, outside economists pegged the costs at $300 to $500 billion. Of course, there is no such thing as loan forgiveness. Loans cannot be forgiven. They can only be transferred to some payer other than the payer who originally contracted to take out the loan. In this case, the other payer is gonna be each of us as taxpayers. If we take a compromise figure, say $400 billion and divide by the number of taxpayers in the United States, that works out to a cost of $2,698.22 per taxpayer. The White House refused to acknowledge this during the program rollout. When asked, administration spokesmen insisted that because of all the previous work done by the Biden administration to reduce the deficit The plan would be, in their words, fully paid for. Of course, that work they kept referring to involved nothing more than returning to pre-pandemic spending levels. Nor, they insisted, would this be a maneuver that would promote inflation. That's absurd. It was only a week ago that the White House was bragging about Biden signing something called the Inflation Reduction Act. Even by the administration's own numbers, that law will only reduce the deficit by $102 billion over 10 years, and that won't begin until 2027. This new action on student loan debt will cost four times as much as that law reduces the deficit. Even Democrats said Biden's action would promote inflation. Former Clinton Treasury Secretary Larry Summers warned that it would, quote, contribute to inflation. And Obama economic advisor Jason Furman called it a reckless idea that will add a half trillion dollars of gasoline on the inflationary fire that is already burning. Vulnerable Senate Democrats also distanced themselves from the Biden move. In Nevada, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto said, I don't agree with today's executive action. In Ohio, Democrat Senate nominee Congressman Tim Ryan said, While there's no doubt that a college education should be about opening opportunities, Waiving debt for those already on a trajectory to financial security sends the wrong message to the millions of Ohioans without a degree working just as hard to make ends meet. End quote. In Colorado, Senator Michael Bennett said, quote, One time debt cancellation does not solve the underlying problem. End quote. Not surprisingly, there's serious doubt about the president's legal authority to take this action by himself. On July 28, 2021, no less an authority than Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, people think that the President of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That has to be an act of Congress. The President can't do it. So that's not even a discussion. Not everybody realizes that. But the President can only postpone, delay, but not forgive, end quote. Someone is going to sue Biden over this. Remember, I'm not a lawyer, but I cannot help but remember that the Supreme Court's recent decision in the case of West Virginia versus EPA was based on the court's belief that Congress had not explicitly authorized the executive branch to take the specific steps the executive branch agency was taking. If someone standing can sue Biden, he may end up losing in the Supreme Court on the basis of that ruling in West Virginia versus EPA. Now, let's get to Mark Zuckerberg. On Thursday of last week, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg sat with podcaster Joe Rogan and admitted on Rogan's podcast that Facebook suppressed information about Hunter Biden's laptop and its contents in the run-up to the 2020 election, following conversations with FBI agents who warned Zuckerberg's staff of what they characterized as Russian misinformation. Zuckerberg said he could not recall if the FBI agents specifically mentioned the Hunter laptop story in the warning they shared with Facebook staff. But the laptop story fit the pattern that the FBI agents had warned about, so he took steps to suppress the story on Facebook. Rogan tried to get Zuckerberg to elaborate. He wanted to know how much did Facebook suppress the story. Zuckerberg dodged and would not admit to anything specific, saying only that fewer people saw it than otherwise. This is not new information. We all knew that Facebook suppressed the story back in the fall of 2020. What is new is the FBI angle. Back in October of 2020, when Facebook took the action it did to suppress the story, company officials explained that the suppression was, quote, part of our standard process to reduce misinformation, end quote. No mention was made of any visit by FBI agents to warn of Russian election interference through misinformation programs. Or are we to believe that FBI agents' warning of Russian covert operations is part of Facebook's standard process to reduce misinformation? Now to the FBI raid follow-up, week two. On Monday, two weeks to the day after Mar-a-Lago was raided by the FBI, President Trump's legal team filed a motion seeking the appointment of an independent special master to review the documents taken by the FBI in that raid. Federal District Judge Aileen M. Cannon of the Southern District of Florida set a hearing for September 1 in West Palm Beach, Florida. On Thursday of last week, the Department of Justice responded to Judge Bruce Reinhardt's order of last week by submitting a redacted version of the affidavit it had originally given him to support the application for a search warrant to allow them to search President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. Within hours, Reinhardt had released the redacted version to the public. This judge, who clearly has a bias against President Trump, a bias he appears to have acknowledged earlier this year when he recused himself from another case involving Trump, accepted all of the DOJ's proposed redactions. Not surprisingly, the DOJ redactions were extensive. Almost half the affidavit is blacked out. Even the document explaining the redactions is heavily redacted. Consequently, we didn't really learn that much that we didn't already know. The affidavit declares that the 15 boxes of documents that President Trump and his team turned over to representatives from the National Archives and Records Administration on January 18 appeared to, quote, contain national defense information, NDI, and were stored at Mar-a-Lago in an unauthorized location, end quote. Further, said the affidavit, these highly classified documents were intermingled with other records. The affidavit further stated that, quote, a preliminary triage of the documents with classification markings revealed the following approximate numbers, 184 unique documents bearing classification markings, including 67 documents marked as confidential, 92 documents marked as secret, and 25 documents marked as top secret, unquote. President Trump's allies remind us he declassified all these documents. Not surprisingly, the DOJ questions that assertion. But I would point out that the affidavit does not refer to the materials in question as classified. Instead, the locution is quite specific. It refers to them as documents with classification markings. Just because a document has markings on it indicating it's classified does not mean it's still classified. That just means it was once classified. So, why did the FBI feel the need for a search warrant? According to the affidavit, the FBI believed there was probable cause to believe Trump had improperly taken more classified materials to what it called unauthorized locations at Mar-a-Lago, and the FBI believed it would likely find what it called evidence of obstruction. Quote, There is probable cause to believe that additional documents that contain classified NDI or that are presidential records subject to record retention requirements currently remain at Mar-a-Lago, said the affidavit. And why does Trump seem to believe the documents he's got at Mar-a-Lago are his and not the government's? According to CNN, it's because of counsel he got from Tom Fitton at Judicial Watch. Fitton called Trump after he learned earlier this year, that Trump had returned 15 boxes of documents to the NARA and told Trump that based on a 2012 case in which he was involved, he believed Trump had case law on his side. Fitton told Trump that he had tried to gain access to certain records from former President Bill Clinton's time in office. Ten years ago, Judicial Watch sued to require the National Archives and Records Administration to designate as presidential records audio recordings of Clinton being interviewed by historian Taylor Branch so the audio recordings would be subject to Freedom of Information Act requests. The suit was dismissed by a federal judge who wrote that the National Archives and Records Administration, quote, does not have the authority to designate materials as presidential records and, quote, lacks any right, duty, or means to seize control of them, end quote. So what we have here appears to be a dispute between President Trump and the National Archives and Records Administration that, that's now become weaponized. On Saturday afternoon, Judge Cannon announced what she called her preliminary intent to appoint a special master to review the records taken by the FBI from Mar-a-Lago during its raid earlier this month. Now to a campaign update, a brief overview. Let's start with the campaign to control the Senate. The Senate is divided 50-50, which gives the Democrats effective control given that the vice president, Democrat Kamala Harris serves as the president of the Senate and can vote to break a tie. Republicans need to net a one-seat pickup to take control. There are 35 Senate seats up for election this year, and Republicans are defending 21 of the 35, so Republicans are playing defense in the majority of Senate contests this year. There are four Republican-held open seats in Missouri, North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, and one Republican incumbent, running for re-election, who's in a dogfight. That's Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who just found out a couple of weeks ago that his opponent in the general election will be Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. He's a truly radical left-winger. Johnson has a history of winning close races. In 2010, he flipped the seat when he beat incumbent Democrat Russ Feingold by 52 to 47%. In 2016, Johnson was running so far behind his opponent, Russ Feingold, again, The National Republican Senatorial Committee polled its advertising and left him on on his own. He revamped his campaign operation and put millions of dollars of his own money into the race and ultimately defeated Feingold again, this time by 50 to 47%. The last three public polls in the current race show Barnes leading by two at 46 to 44, by seven at 51 to 44, and by four at 50 to 46. What's important here is that Johnson is polling at 44 to 46 percent. That's trouble for any incumbent. In North Carolina, the GOP nominee, Congressman Ted Budd, should have little difficulty holding the seat. In Missouri, after a hard-fought primary that ended just a few weeks ago, State Attorney General Eric Schmidt emerged as the Republican nominee and should have little difficulty holding the seat. The open seats in Ohio and Pennsylvania are different stories. The good news is, in both cases, President Trump's endorsed candidate won the contested GOP primaries. The bad news is they haven't yet succeeded in consolidating the party behind them. My experience tells me this is often a harder job than people think it is, especially in a GOP primary where the winning side is the conservative candidate, and the losing candidate is the moderate, or squish, Republican. When conservatives lose primaries, we tend to quickly suck it up and get behind the winner, even if he or she is a moderate Republican because we really, really don't want to see a liberal Democrat win the general election. Moderate Republicans who lose primaries, on the other hand, do not automatically get behind the conservative who beat them. In many cases, they feel ideologically closer to the Democrat they would have been running against in the general election than they do to the conservative who beat them in the primary. Sometimes they never do come around, and that makes the general election a very difficult challenge for the conservative primary victor. That's at least part of what's happening now in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Consequently, J.D. Vance in Ohio and Dr. Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania have not yet closed the gap with their Democrat opponents. Senator Mitch McConnell's affiliated Super PAC has made a $28 million ad buy for the post-Labor Day campaign in Ohio, but has not yet announced its plans for Pennsylvania. In Ohio, the last three polls, including the latest one by the Trafalgar Group, Show Democrat nominee Congressman Tim Ryan leading Vance by three at 42 to 39, by three at 45 to 42, and by five at 50 to 45. That last one is the Trafalgar Group survey. For any Republican to be trailing a Democrat in a statewide poll in Ohio is ridiculous. I'm confident that Vance will eventually win this race, but it shouldn't even be close, frankly. Ohio turned reliably red a long time ago. In Pennsylvania, the polling is even worse. The last three polls show the Democrat candidate, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, leading Dr. Oz by four at 48 to 44, by 13 at 43 to 30, and by four at 48 to 44. That's a significant improvement for Dr. Oz. In the previous three polls, he was trailing by 11, 6, and 9 percent. Then there are four races where Democrats are playing defense. In New Hampshire, incumbent Senator Maggie Hassan looks to be getting a free ride after the guy who was potentially her strongest challenger, incumbent Republican Governor Chris Sununu, took a pass. Given that she won her last race for the Senate by fewer than 800 votes, the failure to recruit a strong challenger is political malpractice by New Jersey and National Republicans. That leaves Arizona, Georgia and Nevada as potential Republican pickups. In Arizona, incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly leads GOP challenger Blake Masters by 9 at 44 to 35 and 8 at 50 to 42 in the two most recent polls. In Georgia, incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock leads Republican challenger Herschel Walker by 3 at 46 to 43, by 9 at 48 to 39 and by four at 46 to 42 in the last three polls. We haven't seen a poll since late July there, so it could be closer. In Nevada, incumbent Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto leads Republican challenger Adam Laxalt by three at 44 to 41, and by seven at 45 to 38 in two of the last three polls, but trails him by three at 47 to 44 in the most recent poll. Then there are a couple of other races of interest. In Colorado and Washington, national Republicans are hopeful that their challengers can make real races out of the Democrat incumbents' re-election contest. In Colorado, incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett leads Republican challenger Joe O'Day by 5 at 47 to 42 in the only public poll that's been taken. And in Washington, incumbent Democrat Patty Murray leads Republican challenger Tiffany Smiley by 18 at 51 to 33 and by 20 at 53 to 33. So I honestly don't know what they see in that race. <coughs> Excuse me. Right now, I'd say the race for control of the United States Senate in the next Congress is still a toss-up. I could see Republicans netting several seats, maybe as many as three or even four, but I could also see Democrats winning the control for the, the contest for control of the Senate, netting a pickup of one or even two seats. On the House front, Republicans are well-situated to take control in the next Congress. They need to net a five-seat pickup to recapture the majority. The Cook Political Report right now says there are 214 seats classified as lean Republican, likely Republican, or solid Republican, with 188 seats classified as lean Democrat, likely Democrat, or solid Democrat. That leaves 33 seats in the toss-up category of which 25 are now held by the Democrats and eight by Republicans. Real Clear Politics lists 219 seats as lean, likely, or solid Republican and 182 lean, likely, or solid Democrat, with 34 toss-ups, of which 29 are now held by Democrats and five by Republicans. At the start of the cycle, there was talk of the Republicans netting as many as 30 or 40 seats. After all, in the last two Democrat presidencies, the first midterm election was a wipeout for the Democrats. A 54-seat pickup in 1994 and a 63-seat pickup for the Republicans in 2010. But remember, Republicans did something very rare in 2020. They actually netted seats in a campaign where their presidential candidate did not capture the White House. House Republicans gained 12 seats in 2020. Those are the seats that would have been the low-hanging fruit in this election if Republicans hadn't already won them. That's the difference between a net 28-seat pickup and a net 40-seat pickup. And now I'm going to talk about the elephant in the room, the polling problem. Remember a few minutes ago when I gave you polling information quite detailed about several Senate races, and I acted like that polling information was accurate and was valuable information for helping us assess how various campaigns are doing? Well, I don't really think that, except this way. If you add four or five points to the Republican's number in any one of those polls, then you might have something you can work with because pollsters have had a significant polling problem for at least the last four cycles, and I can't help but think they haven't solved it yet. In 2014, there were about eight races that the polls told us were a toss-up all the way from the spring to the fall. In each race, we were told that the polling showed that the two candidates were within the margin of error. Then, on Election Day all over the country, Republicans won, and won big. We netted nine seats in the Senate that year, and we could have won ten. Except that because the polling said all those races were tight, we directed resources to those races instead of to the 10th, which was Ed Gillespie's race in Virginia against incumbent Democrat Mark Warner. The polling said Gillespie was down by a dozen points, so no one directed resources there. When the dust settled, Gillespie lost that race by about one and a half points. If he'd had any resources from our side directed his way, he could have won. And the eight or nine races we were told were toss-ups, Only two of them were decided by fewer than five points. The rest were blowouts. The polling has not improved since then. The problem is we don't know for sure what the real numbers are, so that makes it difficult to direct resources to the right places. Stay tuned. That's our Washington Report